way to interrupt your conversation, but I am standing here awkwardly. <laughs> um, so lovely to see you all this morning. If you don't know me, I am Kate. I am the fashion coordinator here in Carrickford Spinyard. It's so lovely to, to see you. You all are looking lovely. Even news online as well in your pajamas. Um, so, um, before I turned um, 40, if you'd looked at my sleep analysis on Fitbit, it went awake, comatose, awake, um, and unfortunately it is no longer like that. Um, the joys of hitting a certain age, it's sort of a bit more like this now. Um, but one thing that really hasn't changed is that I still don't really remember my dreams. Um, I know I've had them, but I can't tell you the details apart from one. I had this dream one night where I had this business idea, and it was the best business idea ever. It was going to make me a ton of money. Everyone loved it. I was going to be able to quit my job. And then I woke up, and I didn't remember what the business idea was. It was like so devastating. Um, in our dreams, we can have wild adventures. We can live other lives and be um, a different person other than the groaning and sighing one who gets woken up by the alarm clock the next morning. And there's huge potential in our dreams and wide possibilities. Dave re recently dreamed that he wrote a poem, a whole poem, that made him lots of money and allowed him to quit his job. Imagine one poem can do that. And we have been exploring these past four weeks the question, what's the dream? The dreams that God has for us, the dreams that we have for our lives. And last year, Positive Carrick Fergus asked the people of our town the question, what's your wildest dream for Carrick Fergus? And they distributed postcards, and I've left some of them at the end of your rows, so you might see them there. And they encourage people to return them to be displayed in the talking shop in the courtyard um, down um, there in Carrickfergus. And if you haven't been down, I would really recommend going down to read what people in Carrickfergus are dreaming about. People dreamed about more shops, cleaner streets, more things for tourists, outdoor hospitality, 10-pin bowling, removing the flags from the front, more arts projects, or, or more, more arts programs, etc. And at first glance, I was really judgmental. I have to confess that to you, know, I was really judgmental. Is this really your wildest dream for Carrick Fergus? The dream that if you had all the power, influence, and resources in the world to bring about a 10 pin bowling alley? <laughs> but then God challenged me. What's your wildest dream then? So I stood with the card in my hand for ages and just took it home, as the dream wasn't coming. At least these people had given it a go, and I couldn't even do that. And dreaming is hard, because we live in the real world. We know that our dreams don't always come true. We know that a lot of life is like plan B, C and T. We compromise and we make the best of things. We know that the world can be a cynical place where our dreams can be laughed at. Get your head out of the clouds, dreamer. We know that we don't have time for dreaming. Our culture is one of action, efficiency, productivity, getting stuff done. So we delude our dreams. 
We settle for what is possible, what we can do with the skills and resources we currently have, and what we can do quickly. Our big, wild dreams become smaller and smaller. And I don't want you to hear me wrong on this one. One of the most powerful verses for me is found in Zechariah, um, where God says, don't despise the small things because God delights to see the work begin. But I believe that God calls us to dream big, but to begin with small acts. I think if we want to see a dream come true, we need to start at the end. We need to spend some time exploring, imagining, ruminating over what the dream will actually look like in real life. So we know what we're working towards, and we know when it comes true. And that is going to frustrate the life of all you action men and women out there. Settle down, don't worry. There will come a time when you get to push us dreamers into action eventually. So starting at the end, what is God's widest dream? I want um, you to turn with me to Revelation 21. And I've been really challenged of late, mostly by the people of Langham Valley Vineyard guys about actually using a real Bible and not just, um, as Andy Masters likes to call, a distraction device. And it came into um, the focus last Sunday when Andrea was talking about Jonah and I brought my Bible with me to church. Could I find Jonah? Didn't know where it was. And I was too proud to look at the contents of the front. So we're in Revelation this morning. That's really easy because it's at the end. So Revelation 21, verse 1 said that, says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, a, beautifully dressed, a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne, saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, or sorrow, or crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will, free, I will give freely from the springs of water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. In Revelation, John writes down God's widest dream. A new heaven and a new earth, where he is with his people, and his people are with him. Where there are no tears, because there is no death, no mourning, no crying, or pain. Where the old order of things, injustice, oppression, violence, poverty, exclusion, fear, and so on, has passed away. And a new order has been ushered in. And you should have known that with me speaking today, you wouldn't have got away today without some of my geekering um, about what words in the Bible mean in their original language. So, buckle up. 
in, in, in the Greek that this text is written in, there are two words for new. There is neos, which is brand new, brand spanking new. And there's kainos, which is the old made new. So in Revelation 21, verse 5, Jesus is seated on the throne and declaring, I am making everything kainos. I am making everything old new. And Revelation challenges the thought that earth doesn't matter. John doesn't give us a vision of God blowing this place up and putting us all on a spaceship to another world. That's another religion. Um, his plan is to renew and restore an old earth made new. One of um, the favourite shows in the Crosby household is the American show Fixer Upper. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's this couple, Chip and Joanna Gaines, who take a wreck of a house and turn it into people's dream home. But in order to do that, they first have a demo day, <laughs> where they basically rip everything out, strip the house back to the bare bones, clear out all the rubbish, and then build it all back up again so it matches the dream family home that they, um, this family are wanting. And this is what Jesus is conveying when he says he's making everything new. He's stripping back the bad stuff, returning his creation to its original beauty and the intention he had for it all along. He is building us a dream home with him. And there are times when it can feel like there's a demo day going on in our lives. That it feels like we are being stripped back to the bones. That all the things that once made our lives comfortable and secure are being put into a skip. But Jesus is making all things new. Now I'm not saying that God is responsible for all the demo days in our lives. It could be the result of our own sin, of other people's, other people's sin or the work of the enemy. But what I am saying is that no matter what, Jesus will build you back. And before Boris nicked it, he will build you back better than before. God's dream is not a place where we go to after we die and lounge on a cloud, playing on a harp, whilst creepy flying toddlers buzz around us. <laughs> Who ever thought toddler, wings on a toddler was a good representation? That's it. I don't want to go to heaven like that. <laughs> so God's wildest dream is the renewal and restoration of all things, with him at the centre. Um, Pete Hughes from King's Cross Church in London writes that our story as Christians is far greater than a message of escapism to another realm where God lives. Our story is God making his home, healing and restoring every aspect of brokenness in this world he has given us as our home. One of my favourite Northern Ireland sayings is, oh sure he's too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. But I think we've got it wrong. I believe we need to be more heavenly minded. We need to be immersed in his dream of the old made new. Living our lives in pursuit of that dream for ourselves, our families and communities. And I love this quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world are just the ones that thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, 
the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth, precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. So what are we aiming at? Okay, I'm going to tell you a wee story about a town. There once was a small sleepy town in a small country where everyone knew each other. But it was not to last as that small country went through the turmoil of a conflict. And certain groups of people flocked to that town because it was sympathetic to and would protect their strong national identity. And they didn't have to deal with any of lemons. But the surrounding area of that town changed, becoming more multicultural, more accepting of other politics and other religions. But the small town stood strong. It fought to preserve its single identity. It kept the lemons out. It intensely fostered its own cultural spirit and longed for the day when they could once again become a single identity state. Sound familiar? Well, it should, because you hear about it every Christmas. And this is what historians believe the town of Nazareth to be like at the time of Jesus. There's no mention of Nazareth in the Old Testament. It doesn't crop up as a town until the second century BC, when the Maccabeans conquered the area of Galilee and made it a Jewish area. But with conflict and the spread of the Roman Empire, Galilee quickly became known as Galilee of the Gentiles. It was no longer a Jewish-only region. However, Nazareth held out and became a Jewish town for Jewish people, where even the priests um, fled to from Jerusalem when it, was, um, when it fell to the Romans, suggesting that Nazareth was this ultra-conservative Jewish place that even Jewish priests could find themselves at home in. And until the 4th century AD, Nazareth was known as a Jewish town. And it was here that plans were being made to take back Galilee and make it um, Jewish once again. This was a town with a strong, single, national, cultural and religious identity. And this was Jesus' hometown. And the place he decided would be the best place to start making God's wildest dream come true. And we read in Luke 4, verse 16. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to, pre to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be free, and that the time of God's favour has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. 
Jesus was using this ancient passage from Isaiah to remind his listeners of the dream of the kingdom and then to declare that he had started the process of making the old new. And this was music to the ears of the people of Nazareth. The establishment of God's kingdom was what they had been dreaming of. All their hopes and dreams would have been tied up into these words from Isaiah. So Nazareth would seem like the perfect place for Jesus to start. He's going to get a ton of followers for his cause here. Verse 28. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Not exactly a great start in making God's dream come true. So what happened? This was meant to be an easy crowd. You see, the people of Nazareth imagined the reality of God's kingdom to be built in a different way. And some theologians believe that what made them furious, what led them to want to push Jesus, their local son, over the cliff, was what Jesus left out, what he didn't read. Isaiah 61, 5-7 says, Foreigners will be your servants. They will feed your flocks and plow your fields and tend your, tend your vineyards. You will call priests of the Lord, ministers of God. You will feed on the treasures of nations and boast in their riches. Instead of shame and dishonour, you will enjoy a double share of honour. You will possess a double portion of prosperity in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. The people of Nazareth dreamed of a kingdom where they would be first, where they would be in control, where they would be rich and happy, not through the work of their own hands, but at the expense of others' work, and not just any other, but those people who were their enemies, you know, lemons. So it was enraging to them to even consider that this kingdom would be established not in revenge, not in superiority, not by force, not by them imposing it on others, but that God would establish his kingdom for everyone in compassion. In Luke 4, verses 25 to 26, just before they go to push Jesus off a cliff, Jesus tells the story of Elijah being sent to show compassion to Naaman the Syrian by healing him. And Jesus goes out of his way to highlight that God sent Elijah in a time of deep need in Israel, not to the poor widows of Israel, but to a Gentile. And this was shocking to this staunch crowd. It was like Jesus wanted to be pushed off this cliff. So as Jesus walks away from that cliff top, he starts the work of making all things new with compassion. And if we look, there's loads of verses in the Bible and I've just highlighted a few. So Matthew 14, 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed those who were ill. Matthew 20, verse 34, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Luke 7, verse 13 to 15, when the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with, you guessed it, compassion. Don't cry, he said. Then he walked over to the coffin, touched it, and the bearer stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. And the dead boy sat up and began to talk. 
Jesus gave him back to his mother. Then there's Mark 1 verse 40, there's Matthew 15 verse 32, and so on and so on. When we see Jesus making things new, when we see him bringing God's kingdom to earth, he is establishing it with compassion. And Chantel talked two weeks ago about confident disciples. Andrea last week talked about cross-shaped disciples. And I want to add compassionate disciples to that list. In vineyard and in church circles, we generally use the term compassion to mean our ministry to those experiencing poverty, struggle and hardship. But compassion is not a separate project or ministry over there, which a few kind-hearted people or the social action nuts do. Neither is compassion only an emotion, an expression of sympathy. Oh, poor you. Compassion is movement. We see what is not and we act to make it what it could be. We see what is not and we act to make it what it could be. One of my favourite verses in the Bible is found in Romans 4 and it says God calls the things that are not as though they were. That is what we do as followers of Jesus. We call the things that are not as though they were. God's dream of a kingdom where his freedom and favour is available to all, where the old is made, made new, is bought, brought to reality by compassionate disciples. Compassionate disciples so captured by the dream of heaven and so aware of the reality of earth that they aren't waiting for the afterlife. They are joining Jesus as he establishes his kingdom right now. Luke 6, 36, you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. So how do we become compassionate disciples, joining Jesus in making God's wildest dream a reality? So I have a wee quiz for you, and it's not as fancy schmancy as Paul's was a couple of months ago, you know, where you got your mobile phones out, I'm going old school here. So it's kind of like, I'm going to give you three options and you just raise your hand see what, um, what the option is. It's really easy. You all live in Carrick, you'll know the answers. So what is the average age of people in Carrick Fergus? Is it 29? Stick your hand up if you think it's 29. No one. 39? Stick your hand up if you think it's 39. Okay, it's 49. 49. Okay, so 49 seems to be the one the most of you go to. It is actually 39. So, I'm, I'm just average. Putting <laughs> it on by the skin of it. Okay, what percentage of the Carrick Fergus population is a lone parent? Is it 3%, 7%, or 9%? So, 3% hands up. 7% hands up. Okay, so 9% hands up. Okay, yep, yeah. 9.3%. And this is a significant figure because in Northern Ireland, um, lone parent families have the highest rate of poverty than any other group. So it's not saying that if you're a lone parent family you will experience poverty, it's saying that you're more likely to. So how many primary schools in Carrick Fergus have over 50% of their pupils eligible for school needs? So is it four? Okay, I've got one for four. Well done, Owen. Oh, oh, you said four. Paul said four. Um, six, okay, six, eight, 
There was a tie between six and eight. It is actually well done, Owen and Paul, four. Um, and this is a big deal because only 47% of children eligible for free school meals will achieve at least five A star to C grades at GCSE. And 38% of Carrick Fergus population has no or low qualifications. So, this is just an agree or disagree. Carrick Fergus has no areas in the top 10% of most deprived areas in Northern Ireland. Who agrees with that? So there are no areas in Carrick Fergus, okay? Who disagrees with that? If you disagree, you're right. We only have one area, and it is ranked 65th out of 890. But it is 13th most deprived in Northern Ireland in the area of education, skills, and training. So what's this got to do with being a compassionate disciple? If we don't see the reality of earth, we won't be moved to join Jesus in building his dream kingdom. Matthew 9, verse 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus got out and about. He got to know his area and the people who lived there, and faced with the reality of their lives, his response was compassion. Now the word for compassion here is a brilliant word. Who's going to pronounce that? It's splonknon. Can everyone say that? Splonknon. I don't know if that's right, but that's what it sounded like on Google Translate. And it literally means your innards, your bowels, your intestines, your internal organs. When the Gospels write about Jesus having compassion, they aren't talking about a nice, sympathetic, tame thing. Splunknon compassion is to be moved to the depths of your being, to be punched in the gut. And statistics are all well and good, but they are nameless and faceless. They are at a distance, and so they are unlikely to punch us in, in the gut. Compassion comes when we know names, when we are face to face with people, when we see their lives and we hear their stories. And many years ago, I led a home group in Belfast City Vineyard with a few friends out of my house near Windsor Park in Belfast. And we were a group of 20-somethings living in cheap places to rent, just starting out in life. And we decided on Valentine's Day to go around the doors, giving out boxes of chocolates and telling our, my neighbours that Jesus loved them. It was cheesy, but we embraced it. <laughs> um, and we met Maureen, a pensioner who was living in a very sparsely decorated house with no heating on. And I was shocked by how she was living. And over the next few weeks, I just checked in on her, had a cup of a chat with her, and just encouraged my home group to be praying for her. And then unexpectedly, really tragically, her son died and she had no way of paying for the funeral. And I shared this with my home group. And this group of 20-somethings with very little money decided to pay for that funeral. And it was amazing. Having seen Maureen, having heard her story, 
they had compassion on her and then gave her a taste of the kingdom of God. The kingdom where you're not on your own, where you're seen and where you experience that God is with you. It was when that home group got out of my tiny living room and into the street when we saw Maureen that we were compassionately moved to bring the kingdom to that wee terraced house in South Belfast. Compassionate disciples get up close and see the reality of earth and are moved to join Jesus in the dream of making everything new. So what reality are we seeing? Are we up close enough? And what is Jesus making new in the midst of this? I love this quote um, that Chantal shared on Facebook um, this week um, from Eugene Cho. And it says, ideas, dreams, um, and visions don't change the world. Rather, it's people like you and me who faithfully, prayerfully, and tenaciously live out these dream ideas, dreams, and visions who change the world. Compassionate disciples act. We don't, we don't just see and fail, but like Jesus, we act compassionately. You see, God has already created us to be compassionate. The hard wiring is already in place in our bodies, and it's a thing called the vagus nerve. And it starts at your brain, brain stem and it wanders throughout our bodies, touching the heart and the lungs and the liver and the digestive organs. And neuroscientists are learning that it plays an important role in helping us to be compassionate. One neuroscientist has even called it the nerve of compassion. And they've found that those people whose vagus nerve is more active are more prone to emotions that promote compassion, kindness, and love. And the more compassionate we are, the more active this nerve gets, and the more compassionate we become. Well, that's my understanding as someone who did a GCSE single word science, so feel free to Google that later. But I love that the principle is, the more compassion we demonstrate, the more compassionate we're likely to become. In order to meet God's wildest dreams, a reality we need to act. And as I said at the start, I believe that God wants us to dream big, to dream of heaven, but to get begin with small acts. So as Chantelle already mentioned, this Thursday the 26th of May, we're having a compassion dreaming night at the venue. And we'll be dreaming about how Carrick Fergus can become a compassionate place of hope for everyone who lives here and how we, the people of Carrickfergus Vineyard, can join Jesus in creating this. And we're going to spend the night dreaming big dreams, praying together, and thinking about the small steps we can begin to take to see our community impacted by the compassion of Jesus. So come join us, and maybe even bring your postcard filled in at the end of your seats there. The band will start coming up. So Jesus doesn't need us to bring God's kingdom to earth. He wants to do this with us because he wants to share the adventure with us, to share the joy of renewal and restoration with us. And Jesus goes on in Matthew 9 and verse 37 to say, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. 
there is plenty of work available for each of us. So will we say yes to being compassionate disciples and part of making God's wildest dream come true? If Jesus began to make God's wildest dream come true in Nazareth, then he is surely brave enough to make the old new year in Carrick. And do you remember I said at the start I couldn't fill in my wildest dream postcard? So I have agonised about this all weekend. I have scribbled many things down, scribbled them out, and last night I felt really prompted to Google what Carrick Fergus um, Fergus Town's town motto is, um, and so it's that random, it had to be the Holy Spirit, right? So do you know what the town motto is for Karen Fergus? In Latin, it is Gloria Prisa no, Novature, and in English, the glory of the old made new. Jesus has already started making his wildest dream come true in our town. Jesus, give us eyes to see and move our feet to join you.